The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Russian intelligence picked up chatter about an attack on a Russian citizen in the United States. If that happens, that the Russians on American soil, it would be very bad for both our countries. So we take that to Homeland Security? No, I cannot. It is believed the attackers are Russian. Do you understand now? I believe Anya Mishkin and this traitor are part of the conspiracy. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, July 7th, 2022. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. The war in Ukraine continues, although we're still enveloped in the fog of war and it's impossible to ascertain the particulars about exactly what's happening on the ground, at least if one only listens to the yellow journalism of the world's state-dependent press. Continuing our discussion of the Ukraine conflict, we're joined by Professor Salim Mansur, who urges us to stand back from the prevailing narrative and take in the big picture historically to get a, a better understanding of this conflict. Robert's original discussion with Salim can be viewed in its over one and a half hour entirety on Just Right's video platforms, with today's highlights from that discussion being focused on the essentials of that big picture narrative. It is fitting that this broadcast should follow the just past July 4th celebration in the United States. Here it is, 2022. And the United States government is determined to wage a war with a country that was its ally during the past two world wars. And most surprisingly to most people, as you will learn today, was also an ally during the American Civil War and a continuing friend following that war. Now, of course, yes, we are speaking of Russia. And to understand why the current American administration is so intent on waging a war with Russia is to understand that the war with Russia has, at its roots, nothing to do with Ukraine and a lot to do with a group of people referred to as the neocons and who quite literally believe in perpetual wars. Seriously. Learn all about it right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links and archive broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. I'd like to begin by quoting from a June 26th tweet that came from the Russian embassy in the UK and get your thoughts on it, Celine, perhaps in light of our um, private discussions on the monopolar globalist agenda of the US, the EU, and the United Nations. And I'm quoting from the tweet here, it starts off, President Putin, and they're quoting him. Today, as never before, the world needs BRICS countries' leadership in defining a unifying and positive course for forming a truly multipolar system of interstate relations based on universal norms of international law and key principles of the UN Charter." Unquote. And of course, BRICS 
stands for Brazil, Russia, India, Communist China, and South Africa. Your thoughts on that tweet, Celine? We are in the past the fourth month of the special military operation that began uh, in Ukraine on February the 24th. And um, what you're reading, the message coming out of Moscow about this struggle or this fight that is taking place, in a sense about bringing to an end the unipolar ambitions of the Americans and restoring a multipolar world. I believe we are at a hinge moment in history. But the facts of the matter on the ground is that the narrative that the Western media have carried is that Russia, Putin, invaded a sovereign country, crossed the international borders of Ukraine, and has engaged in an aggression against a sovereign country that was seeking membership in the European Union. And the Americans prior to that had been talking about Ukraine joining NATO as the boundaries of NATO's were moving eastward since the end of the Cold War. So that is the narrative uh, that has been spun. And in, in that context, Putin is modern reincarnation of Hitler or Cengiz Khan or whatever is the image that the Western media wants to create. But that is not backed by evidence. This war came about, it, it was a war in which Putin preempted what was expected, what was anticipated, what was happening. That is the escalation of the Kiev regime, the Ukrainian nationalist regime, engaging in the military operation, internal military operation, against the Ukrainian Russian population, Russian ethnic population in the Donbass region. And that sort of military engagement had been taking place since 2014. The Maidan coup that ousted the elected president, who was in a sense pro-Russian, that is President Yanukovych, Viktor Yanukovych was ousted and Poroshenko who was a Ukrainian nationalist, uh, was installed in office. And following that, there has been a constant military aggression, ethnic genocide that was uh, designed and taking place. Let me just quote here as we, as we go forward. Uh, in 2019, President Trump was impeached. And that impeachment, though it failed in the Senate, in the trial, but the the indictment that was brought against President Trump to remove him from office was a phone call that the president had made to the newly elected president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky. And in that phone call, he had discussed and or asked Zelensky to keep him informed, that is President Trump informed, about what measures that the government of Ukraine was going to take in the case of what was now publicly known, the current president, President Biden, and his son were involved with this oil and gas corporation, Burisma, a Ukrainian oil and gas corporation, and its oligarch, Igor Kolomoisky, who had basically put Hunter Biden on the board for the oldest policy, pay-to-play favor. 
and President Trump asked for their information. These were all produced in the public. And he was impeached for that phone call that he was using a foreign government to investigate his political opponent domestically. And the lead of congressman in, in the Democratic team that uh, came uh, to the Senate in the trial and his opening remarks in the impeachment, Adam Schiff made this observation right at the beginning of this of the presentation. He said, the United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here. It is an admission of the proxy war that we keep talking about. Precisely. This is a proxy war that the Americans are waging against Russia, and that opens up the question, why? Why? For stealing Hillary Clinton's coronation. By breakfast, really even brunch, on Election Day 2016, virtually nobody in Washington, D.C. thought Donald Trump could win. And they didn't think that because the entire press corps had been telling them for months that Trump had, as they always put it, literally no chance, not even as an abstract theoretical matter. In the end, of course, they were not only wrong, they were hilariously wrong. By midnight, Trump had won. And a lot of highly educated, extremely well-credentialed people suddenly looked ridiculous. Democratic leaders instead immediately set out to find somebody else to blame for the election results. And soon they settled on Russia. Vladimir Putin got Donald Trump elected, they told us. Hillary Clinton said that repeatedly. The Russian government, quote, hacked our election. That was Jen Psaki not long ago saying it out loud like it were true. Now, here's the context. As she said that, Psaki was trying to explain why the Biden administration is, in effect, working to overthrow the Russian government right now. And for once, Jen Psaki was telling the truth. That is why. Democrats have convinced themselves that Russia stole the presidency, which rightfully belonged to Hillary Clinton. And they mean it when they say it. And that's why they are taking us to war with Russia. We know the war in Ukraine is not about saving democracy, please. We know it's not about protecting the sacred borders of a sovereign country. We know the Biden administration doesn't care about those principles because they run our country and we see how they act. And we know for dead certain, and this comes as sad news to a lot of Americans who are compassionate, but we know now that the war in Ukraine is certainly not about helping the Ukrainian people, those poor people. Many more Ukrainian civilians will die, certainly, thanks to the Biden administration's policies. Instead, the war in Ukraine is designed to cause regime change in Moscow. They want to topple the Russian government. That would be payback for the 2016 election. Now, we should have seen this coming because they said it out loud years ago. Here's Adam Schiff from two years ago predicting it saying it. Watch this. As one witness put it during our impeachment inquiry, the United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here. So we arm Ukraine so we can fight Russia. If only we had taken Adam Schiff seriously as he said it again and again and again. But now we can't help but take Adam Schiff seriously because he's one of the prime movers of this war. you fellows are going to have a class reunion, I'd like to leave. Ma, who is he? Uh, Colonel Hogan, the ranking officer for the prisoners. Don't you remember me, Major? 
I was here when you were walking around the campus in your fresh beanie. Ah, yes, 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 I remember, yes. Now, what can I do for you, Major? He obviously wants a refresher course. In my camp. For that, you would have gotten two days in the cooler. If you had a nice white wine, it'd be worth it. <laughs> you must forgive Colonel Hogan's distorted sense of humor. You're still laughing over the one about the Italian allies. Oh, any dissension between the Germans and the Italians is purely enemy propaganda. Oh, bravo. We, we are not living in the world of 1945 anymore in the, in the context of when the UN Charter was signed. And we need in some ways to update it. And one of the updates that is mostly discussed, but there is no consensus and no agreement upon it, but it keeps coming up repeatedly, is the distribution of veto power at the Security Council. In effect, the United Nations is a two-chamber <laughs> there isn't any federation, you know, there is the upper chamber, the Senate, and then there is the House of Commons. So the General Assembly is analogous to the House of Commons, where every single country in the world is assembled, a sovereign independent state, and each country has one vote. But the upper chamber, the Security Council, constitute of, at the moment, 15 members, five of them are permanent members, who have the veto power and the rest, the 10 other members, non-permanent members are rotating members that are elected on the basis of regional representation by the members of the General Assembly. So to update that, to either expand the veto uh, powers or to limit how much the veto powers can use the veto how many times they can use before it is exhausted and they can't use it anymore. So those are matters of discussion. But whatever will be the outcome of that discussion, eventually, if there is an outcome, it will be something in which the world will participate and then the world will come to a consensus and an agreement and sign on to it. So that is the basis of international law coming out of an international organization, which every actor or participant accepts as the end result if that happened. Whereas the new liberal rule-based order simply comes out of the head of the American power and its allies, you know, and that then is going to be imposed upon the rest of the world. And in some ways, that is the neocon agenda. The platform for this rule-based order, which is American-based uh, order, is NATO. Bringing about regime change or trying to provoke regime change, as happened in Libya, as happened in Serbia with Kosovo. And these were done without the authorization of the United Nations Security Council. And so... NATO, in effect, was running and has been running a security operation, regime change operation, as a parallel to the United Nations. That is what has come into collision now over the Ukraine war. And that was, in a sense, uh, managed by and organized by the neocons in Washington. Russia has taken, that is, Putin has taken the leadership as a result of the Ukraine war to say no to the rule-based order, that we are going to restore and we are going to maintain international law as a basis 
of conducting world affairs, that is through the United Nations. It doesn't seem to matter what administration or who's in power in the United States. These neocons um, have driven policy um, since, as you say, since post-Second uh, World War, but more, um, I guess, tangibly in the, in the 60s, and have driven the, the perpetual war machine of the military-industrial complex, regardless if it's Biden or Trump or, or Bush or Obama, or it doesn't matter who is in power, Kennedy, um, Eisenhower, they still have this worldview which is perpetuating war in a sort of a Trotskyite fashion of a perpetual revolution. You know, perpetual, what was that one quote that you sent me? Um, perpetual war brings perpetual peace, something like that. <laughs> this is their worldview, and it seems to be going on behind the scenes of what you and I would recognize to be the actual people in power. They're puppets. Or, if they're not puppets, they're willingly accepting the advice of these neocons. The philosophy of taking the United States as the moral exemplar of the world, and, and ironically, in an un-American way, perpetuating war throughout the planet to keep it at a, at a stage of war readiness destroy millions of lives throughout the world, destabilize economies and countries in order to put the United States and to a lesser extent Israel, which is also complicit in all this um, worldview of the neocons, at the pinnacle of a movement that the rest of the world doesn't seem to want to um, bow, you know, bow down to. And this is what we're seeing played out now in the Ukraine with Russia in the media, all we see as the peons of the world is the superficiality. Russia, bad guy, invades Ukraine, good guy, therefore we must help. Yeah, but let's stand back. Let's, let, let's go up to 35,000 feet and look down at the history of what's going on and who's pulling whose little strings and why we're in this situation. And I have to thank you for it. It's the, the neocons, I didn't know anything about them. I really, I heard the term before. And they're in, they're, they're in the White House, they're in the Oval Office, you know, uh, telling the presidents in their ear, because most presidents don't know what's going on. They're not grand philosophers or um, people who can see the big picture or historians, you know. They rely on people like the Donald Kagans, the neocons, to tell them how things are in the world. And they just go along. Is that a correct assessment? Yes, absolutely. If I have some reservation to your initial observation, it is that Kennedy or Eisenhower or Reagan, they were neocons or not. But my view uh, or response is that they were not. The reason why, Salim, I bring up Kennedy and Eisenhower, perhaps it's a, a bit of a Freudian thing because those two presidents warned us about the military-industrial complex. Yeah, yeah, told us fair enough. This machine in the background that is going to be used or can be used uh, for evil. And they were right, and that's what happened. These neocons, this loose group of intellectuals, took over the military-industrial complex and used it for their own uh, worldview. Took over or that this was a, a process in which the emergence 
uh, on the effects of the military-industrial complex on the uh, domestic life, uh, constitutional uh, order of the American Republic. You but know? to be fair to Eisenhower, uh, though, he did, he said that we need a military-industrial complex. No longer can we turn plowshares into swords when we find ourselves invaded. We need to be ready. And I would agree with that. Of course you need to be ready at a moment's notice because technology has taken over the world in such a respect that you can have a war uh, beginning and ending in a day, or at least maybe six days. And so I agree with the premise of a military-industrial complex, having a, a war machine ready to defend a free nation. Well, that's the debate. I mean, President Eisenhower was not somebody, you know, who was not only not f familiar with the military, he was a military man. In a sense, in the modern American history, he, in effect, was the greatest general, five-star general, the supreme commander of the Allied forces that won the Second World War in Europe. So for Eisenhower to lay down, it was not, it was not something that he was saying frivolously because no. he was pointing out that every dollar taken out of the American economy to build an American fighter plane is taken away from children who need schools mm. and you veterans know, who need hospital and so on and so Trump forth. Well. I, mean, I, I mentioned Trump in that, but... I think that he is different as well, like you say that Eisenhower and Kennedy are not a part of the neocon agenda, and I and, I, and agreed to agree to that. But Trump as well. As a matter of fact, it has been said that the neocons were the ones behind the defeat of Trump, because he wanted to get out of Afghanistan, he wanted to get out of Syria, he wanted to get out of these engagements, and to bring America back to its roots. So the America that is at the pinnacle or in the mind of the neocons is not the America of 1776 or the America of the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. It's the America of expansionism. You're absolutely right. I, mean, I was going to point out that President Trump, you know, was in fact in a headlong conflict with the neocon position, you know, and in fact, his presidency, his four years in office was a reversal of everything about the neocon position or most of it if not everything, most of it, and that the return of the Democrats into the White House with Biden, however it happened, was the return of the neocons. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's give you the latest updates with the situation in Ukraine, which is really just a proxy war for the globalists and the criminal political elite of the United States of America. But there's a bigger story there and that's the geopolitical movements and trends and shifts that are happening because of it and they're happening uh, happening rapidly and uh, of course our media is not telling you any of it and this is why the world doesn't want to deal with us anymore folks because we send clowns like Merrick Garland and Jake Sullivan and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and men that pretend to be women and men that pretend to be puppies for sex play and we send these people around the world as our representatives. Are you really surprised the world doesn't want to deal with us anymore? Are you really surprised that there's a new alliance of world power that is shifting and leaving America behind because we're a joke or a clown show? 
Russia becomes China's biggest oil supplier. So there's two countries that are the biggest oil supplier to China. It had been Saudi Arabia for a while. Now it's Russia. China has also idled its fuel processing plants. Something's going on there, folks, and I've been telling you what it is for a while. Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, and other countries are forming a new alliance of power, and they intend on replacing the Western alliance of power that has now become Clownville. And so the world is ready to advance. The world is ready to go on to the next level. And they don't want to do mass depopulation. They don't want to turn the planet into a corporate world government slave system. And so they're moving on. I'm not saying these countries are perfect. I'm not saying their leaders are even good guys. I'm just telling you that's what's going on. A red, white, and blue suit with stars all over it. And I'll show you the victim of a hit-and-run flag. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. But coming back to the Ukraine issue about the neocon, it begins with the policy paper, the neocon policy paper that was prepared immediately after the end of the Cold War and submitted to uh, the Clinton administration. I have it right on my hand, Rebuilding America's Defenses. And it is what is called a report, the project for the new American century. The project for new American century is the neocon document that was prepared as the Cold War came to an end. And here, Again, to put it very quickly in a nutshell, the Cold War came to an end gradually. Uh, and, and you have this document being prepared, but the expectation for the American people, the European people, that is people around the world, was the end of the Cold War will bring peace dividend. It will be the end of this almost half a century of living at the razor's edge of a confrontation between Soviet Union and United States that had every possibility of escalating towards a nuclear confrontation, a nuclear exchange. We lived in a world that was by its acronym called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction, you know, and that was the temper of the time that people have forgotten. Uh, so in 1989-1990, there was an expectation of peace dividend. And what happened? There was that unique moment in history with the collapse of the Soviet Union that America finds itself as a lone superpower. America is the dominant power, you know. It's, and this is the unipolar moment in history. One superpower straddling the globe militarily, economically, and in every other way, it is a dominant power. And what is the neocon agenda? It is spelled out right in the policy paper. Uh, and, and it is the one sentence that captures the whole neocon agenda is this following sentence, if I may read it out. It's just one sentence. It says, at present, that is the 1990s, at present, the United States faces no global rival. America's grand strategy should aim to preserve 
and extend this advantageous position as far into the future as possible. So this is it. I mean, the, the, the unipolar moment should be extended right across indefinitely into the future. But to expand and build the new American century, the unipolar moment, you need an enemy. And the enemy would be Russia, you know. So the 1990s was the buildup of the neocon agenda. Russia was the eventual target in the sense that Russia had to be eliminated because Russia is the other military power, it is still a nuclear power country, and Russia has to be brought to its knees so that the globalist agenda can be imposed upon the rest of the world. You know, it's such a shame, Salim. It's such a shame because historically, and you and I have had good discussions over this in the past, historically Russia was a good neighbor. He was an ally of the United States. The United States would not exist in its present form if it wasn't for Zahir Alexander II. You know, now mind you, the Soviet Union was one hell of an evil empire, but they were our allies in World War I and World War II. This is where one would hope, in the best sense of the word, that the media would be the instrument of educating the public by providing these different perspectives and different voices and different understanding so the public can be informed that a particular narrative has a particular agenda. This narrative to present Russia as an enemy has a particular agenda, just as the agenda after 9-11 was to paint all Muslims and all of Islam as the enemy, you know, was an agenda, you know, as if, you know, two billion people almost now, Muslims around the world, I am a Muslim coming, my family from India, world's largest democracy, and it is also second largest Muslim population in the world, that we are all the enemies of the West, or we are all irrational people, and, you know, we are horned devils. But that's, that is what exactly the media narrative was, you know, and that narrative has continued in, in, in so many different ways. So the terrible tragedy of our time, you know, is how the media, instead of serving the people by educating them through the multitudinous voices that exist, that gives the complexity of the world. And in this crowded world, we need to understand each other instead of vilifying each other. That is what has happened. And Russia is now the vilification. But if you step back, as, as you point out, there is another narrative. This is a book, The Democracy in America, that needs to be read and reread to understand what was the promise of America that so charmed and overwhelmed Alexei de Tocqueville, a child born in an aristocratic family, growing up in the revolutionary period and the Napoleonic War, but came to America, looked at America and wrote about America in so many different ways that unraveled the soul of America and the American people and what is democracy. And in the end of the first volume, 1835, he turns around and he looks at the world that is his world, and speculates what he sees. And what he sees is these two continental powers. One he has visited and has come back and written about it, and the other with which France is engaged with, that Napoleon, the paradox and the irony, ultimate defeat was brought about 
by invading Russia. But Tocqueville sees the emergence of these two continental powers. One, United States, with its manifest destiny, moving across the continent westward towards the Pacific Ocean. The other continental power, Russia, in its own version of manifest destiny, moving across the continent, that is Eurasia, to the Pacific Ocean. And if I may, I, I would like to read the concluding paragraph. It is astounding paragraph. The neocons haven't read it, apparently, or the neocons don't want to read it, or the neocons want to go contrary to what Tocqueville was talking about. He says, a time will arrive when one can see 150 million men in North America. Well, now we are in America, 340 plus million people. 150 million men in North America, equal among themselves, who all belong to the same family, who are the same point of departure, the same civilization, the same language, the same religion, the same habits, the same mores, and through whom thought will circulate in the same form and be painted in the same color. And then he goes on to say, there are two great peoples on the earth today who, starting from different points, seem to advance toward the same goal. These are the Russians and the Anglo-Americans. Their point of departure is different. Their ways are diverse. Nonetheless, each of them seem called by a secret design of providence to hold the destinies of half the world in his hands one day. Destiny, either of peace or of war. Obviously, Alexei is not wishing war. Destiny is in terms of peace. You know, and as a Frenchman, he has seen the immense power in terms of stamina, resolve, determination, and capacity to withstand whatever is thrown against them and eventually prevail, and that is the Napoleonic Wars. And if we then advance after Tocqueville, the same thing we saw in the Second World War. But in between the Second World War and the Napoleonic Wars, in which Russia defeated Napoleon and Russia defeated the Germans and advanced towards the center of Europe as a result of those two wars that was imposed upon Russia, there is the other story. Before Salim gets to his other story, Here's another man's story that hauntingly reflects the very theme Salim is telling us about. The following chilling story you are about to hear was told by Vietnam veteran Bill Earhart in a 1990 interview. And I believe that the rest will speak for itself. You know, the funny thing about Vietnam is that I, I was getting Time magazine every week. It came in the mail. I could read about my war even as I sat in the middle of it. And I would read about what Lyndon Johnson would say and what McNamara would say and what Rusk would say. And I could look around and see that, uh-uh, I don't know what war they're talking about, but that's not what's going on here. 
we actually had an incident happen where one of our line companies uh, stumbled upon a, a fairly large uh, cache of uh, Viet Cong weapons and ammunition. And I read in the Stars and Stripes, the daily newspaper that we received, this, this little action actually made it into the papers, and we read that we had set the Viet Cong effort back by at least four months in our area. Within a week of that article appearing in the paper, within, within 10 days of the incident itself, the bridge, 150 meters in front of our battalion compound, was dropped by Viet Cong sappers. An Amtrak coming in from uh, the horseshoe area from one of the line companies uh, hit a 50-pound box mine. Several men were killed. A bunch more were wounded. A patrol out at Fukrok Bridge was ambushed. Several people were killed. Several people were wounded. I mean, nobody told the Viet Cong that they'd been set back for four months. And yet this is what you're reading in the newspapers. This is what you're being told back in the United States. I could see that, that the war went on day after day after day interminably at the same pace no matter what we did. I'm wasting your film. Well, when I got to Vietnam, I, I literally expected to be welcomed with open arms by the people of Vietnam. I had in my head the black and white newsreels I had seen on the Walter Cronkite 20th century show of the American troops rolling through villages in France and being showered with wine and flowers and kisses. Um, and as we were driving down, uh, a guy from the battalion I was assigned to picked me up in a jeep at Da Nang, and we had to drive the 20 miles to where my battalion was located, and I, I really was uh, disappointed that there weren't people standing along the road waving to me and you know, offering me flowers and things. I really expected to be greeted as, with open arms as a liberator, and it was, as, it was as though I was invisible, as though I didn't exist. Um, and that was a little perplexing. Moreover, it was, it was, uh, they looked funny and they acted funny. I mean, just riding along in this Jeep the first day I got there. They lived in little straw huts and they had animals in their, in their backyards and uh, they weren't like us. They smelled bad. The whole country smelled bad. You could smell it. It, was, it hurt the nose. Um, and that was disturbing. And then I was there for about, on the third day I was there, this guy who had picked me up in the Jeep, uh, a corporal who I was ultimately going to replace, uh, he and I were in the battalion intelligence section. We were sent down to the uh, tractor park, the amphibious tractor park, to meet a bunch of detainees. It was our responsibility to take care of prisoners, and detainees were a classification of civilians. They were not combatants. They were... They were uh, they could be detained for questioning, which is how they were, why they were called detainees. Um, and Jimmy and I went down there to the track park, and two tractors came in. They had a whole bunch of uh, Vietnamese up on top, high, flat-topped vehicles, about eight or nine feet tall. And as the tracks wheeled into the park, 
the Marines up on top immediately began uh, hurling these people off. They were bound hand and foot so that they had no way of breaking their falls. Um, and they were old men, women, children, no young men. And I, I couldn't believe these guys were treating these people this way. And I, I turned to Jimmy and said, I grabbed him by the arm and said, what are, what are those guys doing? These aren't, these are, we're supposed to be helping these people. And Jimmy turned to me and he looked at my hands on his arm, I sort of took them off and he said, Earhart, you better keep your mouth shut until you know what's going on around here. And I think it was at that point that I realized things were not quite what I was expecting. Um, it went downhill from there. And again, I can't even begin to explain in the space of time that you have uh, all of the things that went into it, but I began to understand, you know, it became obvious that the enemy was the very people in these villages around us, and we were in a very heavily populated area at that time. Um, they were the enemy, or at least the enemy was out there somewhere and we couldn't tell one from another. And day after day our patrols went out uh, and we ran into snipers and mines, and snipers and mines, and snipers and mines. I saw four armed enemy soldiers the first eight months I was in Vietnam. And yet our battalion during that same period of time sustained 75 mining and sniping incidents per month, over half of them resulting in casualties. This is for a unit of about a thousand men. But there was no one to fight back at. And you begin to think, these people are the enemy. They're all the enemy. And then you go through villages and, you know, you get sniped at and so you call an airstrike in on the village and the whole village goes up, or you go through a place and you search it and you burn houses and blow them up. Um, you know, the common perception, the notion I had when I was in high school was that it was the Viet Cong terrorized the Vietnamese population, uh, forced them to fight against the Americans on pain of death. What I began to understand in Vietnam was that they didn't need to do things like that. All they had to do was let a marine patrol go through a village. And whatever was left of that village, they had all the recruits that they needed. Um, I began to understand why the Vietnamese didn't greet me with open arms, why they in fact hated me. But of course that didn't change the fact that, that my friends were getting killed and injured every day. And, and the only place that you could focus your own anger and fear was on those civilians who were there. And uh, so it was this self-perpetuating mechanism. The longer that we stayed in Vietnam, the more Viet Cong there were, because we created them, we produced them. Um, none of that distilled itself into the, the clear kind of expression that I'm presenting now. Um, what I began to understand within days, and which became patently clear within months, was that what was going on here was not what I had been told. What was going on here was nuts, and I wanted to get out. 
I knew if I were still alive on March the 5th, 1968, they'd stick me on an airplane in Da Nang, we used to call it the Freedom Bird, and I could fly away and forget the whole thing. Turned out not to be quite so easy to forget it, but that was the notion. And, and f certainly for my last eight, nine months in Vietnam, I ceased to think. I quite literally ceased to think about why I was there or what I was doing. The sole purpose for my being in Vietnam at that point was to stay alive until I could get out. And the reason for that is that, you know, the kinds of questions that began to present themselves were just, the questions themselves were ugly. And I didn't want to know the answers. It's, it's, like, it's like banging on a door. You knock on a door, and the door opens slightly, and behind that door it's dark, and there's and there's loud noises coming like there's like there's wild animals in there or something and you peer into the darkness and you can't see what's there but you can hear all this ugly stuff you want to step into that room no way you just sort of back out quietly pull the door shut behind you and walk away from it and that's what was going on those que the questions themselves were too ugly to even ask let alone try to deal with the answers Now, part of what was going on is that I could not have made sense of what I was seeing and doing in Vietnam because I did not have a full deck of cards. I needed to have an understanding of the political and historical realities that brought us to Vietnam before I could make sense of what I was seeing. Tocqueville was alive when the Crimean War took place in 1854-56. He had just stepped down from being French foreign minister. And the Crimean War was a war that resulted because of Britain and France coming into an alliance with the Ottoman Turkish Empire to fend off the Russian. The Russians under Tsar Alexander II had stepped forward. They were pushing south as it was pushing eastward towards the Pacific, and it was pushing against the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire controlled the area around the Black Sea and into what is modern day, the Balkan states of Serbia, Romania, Hungary, and so on. These were all part of the Ottoman Empire. But these were Christian people. They were Orthodox Christian, especially the people in Hungary and um, Serbia. And there was an internal conflict within the Ottoman Empire between Christians and Muslims over Constantinople, which was historically the capital of the Orthodox Christianity that the Turks had conquered going back to the 15th century. And Russia, as now, in a sense, Moscow at the Third Rome and the Emperor of Russia and the Patriarch of Moscow representing Orthodox Christianity was coming to the defense of the Orthodox Christians in the Balkans or Constantinople. And Britain and France instead joined with the Ottomans to fight the Russian in the Crimean War. Okay, So the Crimean War came to a stalemate and peace treaty was imposed in a conference in Berlin. But simultaneously, or a few years later, almost, you know, coming one after the other, the American Civil War broke out. 
And here you have Britain and France again. Tocqueville well is dead and gone by now. You have Britain and France again supporting the slave states, the Confederate powers against the Union. There is the British North America. Canada has still not come together as a dominion. So the provinces of Canada, the British are present in North America in that sense. Halifax is the naval base of the British fleet in North America. And the French and the British are in support of the Confederacy against the Union. And so Alexander II sends the Russian fleet to New York. He sends his Baltic fleet to New York, and he sends his specific fleet to California. Whatever may be the various historical views upon this matter, none of the historians deny the fact that President Lincoln and his Secretary of State, William Seward, greeted the arrival of the Russian fleet in New York with all the pomp and ceremony deserving to Russia. They greeted the fleet, they greeted the, the admirals who came with the fleet. There were massive balls that were held in New York City. President Lincoln gave uh, a massive feast to the, the visiting officers. Flags were raised both on the East Coast and the West Coast. And the positioning of the fleet, the Russian fleet, was deliberate. It was, it was positioned in New York and, and going up and down the coast, given the fact that the British fleet is in Halifax. So the long and the short of it is that the most vulnerable and trying moment of the American Republic, when the American Republic was on the edge of possibly breaking apart, but for Abraham Lincoln's determination to hold it together and fight the Civil War, the Russian fleet played a role. It deterred the British and the French fleet from intervening in raising the blockade on the Union ports. And this is recognized and was recognized by the Lincoln administration and the subsequent administration. Now both Lincoln and Tsar Alexander II, in their own respective ways, were emancipators. In the midst of the Civil War, Lincoln signed the proclamation of emancipation of the slaves. And then he gets assassinated in 1865. And there are stories and ruminations and reflection to the extent that the British had a hand in the assassination of Lincoln through various agencies and agents based out of Montreal. So there you have it, you know, Canada in that sense was a participant in a negative way uh, in the war. But President Lincoln was an emancipator and his counterpart, Tsar Alexander II, was an emancipator. He emancipated the serfs of Russia, you know, and he was assassinated too in 1881. Both the men, Lincoln and Tsar Alexander. But Tsar Alexander, before he died, he negotiated, that is, his people negotiated the sale of 
the Russian province of Alaska. That is the great advance that Tocqueville was writing about, uh, the sale of Alaska to the Americans for $7 million. Uh, and in a way, position or helped America position itself far north in the North American continent with uh, territory that would again block off the British. So that story is not discussed today or it has gone down into the black hole of memory. But what that story tells us that there is no permanent enemies, which is what the neocon would like to have people see Russia as the permanent enemy, this, this um, Putin as the reincarnated Hitler or Stalin. What it is, is that the end of the Cold War opened a new chapter in history. And so that history then spread across the 20th century is the short-circuiting of the promise and the possibilities that Tocqueville, in his mind, has seen as a possibility that a republic based upon a constitution that champions the issue of freedom, liberty, and democracy as equality, and people as sovereign, would be matched by a similar possible advancement over time of Russia, as Russia was emerging as the powerhouse in Europe in terms of its shadow falling across the rest of Europe, that is Western Europe, you know. And the history of the 20th century as a lost cause of freedom in that sense is the history of the madness of Europeans that led to two world wars that embroiled the rest of the world. And then it led to the Cold War. So this war in Ukraine has less to do with the narrative that Putin is the Hitler and Stalin trying to recreate the Soviet Union and more to do in fact, all of it to do, I would argue, with the neocon project of leveling down any opposition. And the biggest opposition in the 20th century, 21st century that they knew, and that's why the, the demonization of Russia that has continued. NATO rational raison d'etre ended with the collapse of the Soviet Union. NATO was formed to contain the Soviet Union in 1949. And that raison d'etre ended and NATO should have been dismantled. But so the question then becomes, what is NATO? Why is NATO 30 years on after the fall of Soviet Union what is the purpose of NATO? It seems to be a, an organization in search of an enemy. Precisely. Precisely. And I think it's found one, or it's creating one, isn't it? We might have difficulties with the UN Charter, with some of its program and some of its issues, but it is the platform that exists 
as a result of all the countries participating in it as independent sovereign state. Whereas NATO and EU pushing the globalist agenda would be simply the new conversion of what they want the world to be. You know, and that is the great contradiction or the great conflict of our time, which should not have happened, but is happening. What Putin referred to in your opening remark between a monopolar or unipolar world and the restoration of a multipolar world. Fascinating history, Celine. Thank you for bringing it to our attention because uh, you're not going to get it anywhere else, perhaps not even in the universities. And if you do, I think it will be tainted in one direction. So let's leave it there and, and join up again uh, to discuss uh, the events as they unfold in Ukraine and the world and uh, get your unique perspective on it. Thank you very much, Lee. Thank you. So, in the end, it's all been a neocon game run by neocons who believe in perpetual wars. You know, it's not for nothing that eternal vigilance is always called upon in the struggle between individual freedom and tyranny. And perhaps the lesson to be taken away from this is that that struggle is a perpetual one, as is the perpetual necessity of having trusted sources of information and truth to enable us to see the world as it is, and not as it isn't. So make it your mission to perpetually join us again each week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Give me a gun, let me shoot myself. No gun. Now look, tell me everything you know about Backshider. He's the key. A Nazi. What about the astrology bit, the metaphysical stuff? Is he a bug on it? They all are, because the Fuhrer is. Anyone he goes to, someone we can use to get to him. There was a woman. I, I believe there was a woman in a white Russian cafe. The very strong line of romance, very strong. Aha, you have been bad, very bad. Marry me and I shall reform, I swear. Get married on your time, not mine. You want to talk business or not? Unfortunate choice of friends. Yes or no? Well, my chart said to be very careful of business transactions today. Buy a little silverware, plant some petunias. Meet someone short. All right, all right. Do a little business. That's around, we don't have time. We know you've got something going with Backshire. I don't care what, but he's holding a woman who works for me, and I want her sprung. Tiger? How'd you know? From the amount of money, she's a very big fish. My colonel has told me why she's in Germany. To find a new German fighter basis. I don't care about that. I'm in the black market, and I need her. Not very convincing. May I read your truth line? I told you I'm an American deserter. I hope you lie better to men. Look, you want something, I shall name a price. Name it. When you find out where the fighter bases are, you'll also give me the information. Aren't you afraid I'm going to denounce you to Backshider? <laughs> he would not believe you. He knows my character. From the bumps on my head. <laughs> I don't get it. 
Why do you want the information when we may be more or less on the same side? More on the same side so we can work together at times. Just enough less so that I would like the information. I trust her. I shall marry you sometime. <laughs> All right, it's crazy, but it's a deal. 